My guest today is Patrick Lennon, who exhibits incredible hands-on leadership and management experience, coupled with academic rigor and expertise. He started his career serving in the U.S. Army Airborne Infantry and as a Ranger Qualified Officer, then worked as a project manager at KPMG Consulting. He next went on to co-found and run an Inc. 5000 recognized consulting firm. In addition to his work at Leden Group, Patrick is an associate professor at Vanderbilt University, as well as recently publishing his third book, The Five-Week Leadership Challenge. Our conversation starts with Patrick describing how he transitioned into various military roles and how he understood the importance of knowing what he was good at and decided to explore career options proactively. He recognized that it is his nature to always be looking out for the next best thing. This observation leads us into a deep dive into what it means to be good at something, getting comfortable being uncomfortable, and why it's important to sometimes show vulnerability. We then shift the conversation to managing teams. Patrick explains how he built up trust and gained respect as a young leader, managing teams of people older and in some ways more experienced than him. We look at the pivotal moments that defined his career and whether these are recognizable in the moment or if this is something we identify only in retrospect. And that was the moment that took it from being us two people on a team with my boss who didn't show up that day to eventually me running a team. I mean, it just, it just pivoted everything. Finally, he talks about his new book, The Five-Week Leadership Challenge, and how he's transformed his leadership principles into actionable daily lessons. Let's dive in. Patrick Gledon, thank you so much for being on the Bet on Yourself podcast today. I'm really thrilled for our conversation. Oh, Anne, I'm so grateful that you invited me. Looking forward to it. Thank you. So it's a tradition on the Bet on Yourself podcast to really start at the very beginning. So I wonder, before we get into the grandeur of your current career, could you walk us all the way back to what a young Patrick thought that he was going to be when he grew up? Let's start way back when. Wow. Yes. What did a young Patrick think he was going to be? I'm not sure if I knew at a very early age. You know, some people immediately go back and say, I was going to be a veterinarian or I was going to be whatever it might be. I I think I was just um, early on kind of the type of kid who wanted the paper route, wanted to work at the hamburger place, wanted to do those type of jobs just to kind of get out and do things. I was the youngest of five. So from my perspective, I was just trying to play a little bit of catch up to everybody else. Uh, It probably wasn't until I got into like my high school years and and I started thinking more about what I wanted to do career-wise. And at at that time, I thought I wanted to be probably work in something in law enforcement, do police work, maybe Mm -hmm. the military. That was kind of where my head was going at the time. So that's kind of what a young Patrick was thinking about. I love that. I am the oldest of seven kids. So I too come from a big family. And I definitely think that informed kind of the way my personality evolved over time for sure. And my dad is the youngest of four brothers and he ended up going into the military, which is where you really kind of got your leadership start. So before the military, did you study at university before you went there or was that part of your military career? Well, so I, when I came out of high school, um, or as I was coming out of high school. So my senior year, I enlisted in what's called the uh, National Guard. So I I joined the Illinois National Guard as a way to um, pay for college. And I guess to test test the waters a little bit. And then I went off to basic training and uh, military police school. So I was right on that track. Yeah. And then I went to college um, using that scholarship. And while I was in college, I joined ROTC. So Mm kind of got on the officer track at that point. And then when I graduated college, the army decided in his ultimate wisdom, You've been through military police training. You studied criminal justice in college. Let's put you in the infantry. 
So it made no <laughs> sense, but that's what they did. Yeah. So that's how it worked out. Well, we can have some friendly rivalry here because I'm an Air Force brat. I was born on McDill Air Force Base in Tampa, Florida. Um, my parents got married when my dad was finishing pilot training, and then he got assigned the F-4 Phantom fighter jet. And oh, that's nice. my entire childhood was on military bases. I was born in Florida, my next two sisters in Alaska. So I can appreciate the military family life and what a challenge that is. Um, and, and some incredible strengths that have come because of that experience of me being a part of a military family. But what was that transition like for you? So you studied, you were looking at criminal justice, you ended up in the infantry. Uh, what was that transition like across the military part of your career? How did your leadership skills evolve? Well, I think when I went to that initial training, that basic training and advanced training, it kind of clicked. I was just kind of good at it. And oftentimes in life, when you find something you're kind of good at, you go, I'm gonna explore this a little bit more. So from that perspective, from the very beginning, I was just kind of good at it. Maybe I just took orders better than others. I was the youngest of five. I had yeah. bossy older siblings like you telling me what to do. And, uh, but you know, I took the orders and I kind of I, I put my uniform on right and did all the things they asked you to do. And I could follow those rules. And then when they asked you to step up and kind of lead a little bit, I wouldn't say I always loved it, but I learned how to do it and, yeah. and learned the importance of it. So then when I came out of college, I met my wife in college. So we were college sweethearts, I guess you would say, and uh, we got married two weeks after we graduated, and two weeks after that, we went in the army. I went in the army, and yeah. she went right there with me. She was there too. You know how that is. I do. So that was pretty, you know, quick. And then uh, went off to uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, which is the home of the infantry. And I had been to Fort Benning before because I went to airborne school uh, one summer during college. So I'd been there a little bit, and then I went to infantry officer school, and then went right on to U.S. Army Ranger School. Um, immediately after that. So it was kind of a quick thing. So in the first year of our marriage, we were pretty much at Fort Benning. And then from there, I went to a place called Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And I spent uh, almost six years in the 82nd Airborne Division. And that was, that was my career in the Army. Incredible. Was it like what people see in the movies, that kind of training experience, the type of leadership step up? You, you were really good at it. What, what does that mean? What, is it, what does it mean to be really good at it? Being in the well, I think that's a good question. I think in the beginning it meant I didn't get a lot. Of I didn't get in a lot of trouble. Right. <laughs> and I kind of uh, stayed the towed the line a little bit. Um, as I grew in it, I think really good at it um, just meant that uh, when they asked me to step up and take on a leadership role, I'd be comfortable doing that. Or I probably I'm pretty comfortable being uncomfortable in general mm. in life. And I think that's been a, something that's been helpful to me um, in throughout my entire career. And I bet a lot of people aren't listening to this podcasts are pretty good at being comfortable, being uncomfortable, yeah. um, living a little bit in ambiguity. Um, so that part of it was, it was pretty good for me. Um, I took a platoon leader job in the 82nd. So a platoon leader initially right out of college, I'm 22 years old, like some of your listeners coming out of school where mm -hmm. I'm 22 years old, immediately I'm in charge of 38 people. And those 38 people are pretty much all older than me or right at my age. And some of them are older by two decades. So that yeah. initial piece, and you start to realize pretty early on, at least I did, I don't want to lead because of the rank on my collar. I didn't have much rank as it was as a lieutenant. <laughs> and I didn't want to lead with that rank. I really wanted to earn their respect. And I, re I recognize that pretty early on. So, I mean, things like that. When I went to ranger school, it's a pretty challenging military school. And they have a lot of people who, um, for many different reasons, um, some of which are not their fault at all, but they get injured. So they get recycled back through the school and mm -hmm. people stay there sometimes stay at ranger school a long, long time trying to get through. Um, I was very fortunate. I didn't recycle at all. So health wise, I did fine. Um, 
I didn't get peered out. They have a little bit of like voting you off the island type of thing. If you don't do yeah. well, they send you back. I didn't have that happen. So I kind of just, I don't want to say I breezed through ranger school, but I made it through in the 68 days they had and was done with that. So um, yeah, it was just a good thing. And then when I, and I was staying at uh, Fort Bragg, uh, I got promoted to captain and I was very fortunate at the time because the, actually the gentleman who is now the secretary of defense for the U.S., a guy named Lloyd Austin, um, was kind enough when I was promoted to captain, he went across the street to another colonel and said, don't let this guy go to the next training yet, give him a company to command. So I got wow. to stay longer. So that was an, a really nice experience as well. I mean, nice in the army, but it was a good experience. <laughs> I'm curious. So I really relate to that because in tech, we often have very talented people who are quite young managing people who in the old model, in the traditional way, like by seniority would have been the managers. So we have like 20 year olds coming straight out of PhDs who are now managing teams of people with maybe, you know, 20 years of work experience. So I've seen that on the tech side. How did you in the army environment build up relationships of trust, get that kind of respect that you needed as such a young leader? What, did you have some best practices that worked really well for you? I think they're pretty fundamental practices of leadership which you probably hear people talk about a lot. I mean, we might name them different things, but they're all pretty fundamental. Listening, asking good questions, um, deferring a little bit to their expertise because you don't have to know everything. And also um, being a role model, like don't, not asking people to do things you're not willing to do yourself. I mean, those things are really key because even as a young officer in the army, I could tell people what to do and they would technically have to do it. Their heart wouldn't be in it, but they would do it. I get their back in their hands through an order but you learn out pretty early on that you know, engaging people, dealing with failure differently than other people around you, trying to be a good role model, um, recognize that you don't know it all. You know, those type of things are pretty critical. And although we weren't, you know, people listening to podcasts may be familiar with the words of people like Brene Brown and talking about vulnerability and how vulnerability is being courageous. I don't say, I wouldn't say back in the army at 22, 23 years old, I was like, I'm going to be really vulnerable, but <laughs> the reality is you're kind of vulnerable. You make mistakes sometimes and, and how you own and deal with that mistake um, gets people to root for you. And I think that that's really critical. Plus underlying all of that, which is, so all of those things transcend military to business, I believe. And then underneath that, I think another thing that really transcends is a sense of purpose or mission of what you're trying to do is really critical. And if you kind of lean into that mission or that purpose, as a team, uh, can get through. You can get through a lot of obstacles. Well, we could end the podcast right there because that mic drop. I think, <laughs> yeah, mic drop <laughs> moment. Exactly. Yeah. I think there's so much wisdom in that you just packed into just uh, 60 seconds. One thing that I'm really seeing a trend at all levels right now is people really needing to do what you just described as kind of that authentic leadership, not pretending you have all the answers. I see that from, it's a common mistake for really young leaders to feel like they can't acknowledge that they don't know something. And um, yeah, I'm a huge Brene Brown fan for so definitely quote her <laughs> as much as you want. But I, um, I think that authenticity really, really resonates and people really respect you. Maybe as a young person, it can seem counterintuitive to show that vulnerability or that I'm figuring it out and, and turning some questions back to your team. Um, and then the other thing that really resonates with me in that is now in the, in the pandemic pivots, I have global consulting clients who are some of them very, very experienced CEOs. And when they finally gained traction with their teams in the time, moments of pivot is when they acknowledged, I don't know, 
I don't know yeah. what the right answer is, but here's what I'm looking for. These are the key indicators I'm keeping my eye on. I will definitely let you know that explaining kind of that why has helped those senior leaders as well as the junior leaders, like really um, build up those relationships of trust with their team when we're not pretending that we have all the answers. Uh, I, I think that's so vital, especially now, regardless of career stage. You know, and then I, I need to be completely candid. It wasn't like I knew all these things then, right? No. <laughs> I had to learn them through. I, I, I tell a story sometimes where when I was in the military, we were out, we were just doing a training exercise. So it's, you know, you're acting as if the enemy's out there and you're working your way through the woods type of thing. And, and everybody has a role um, in, when, when you're marching, you're through the woods, you're kind of all spread out. And the person in the front is the point person. People probably heard of that. And then, you know, the platoon sergeant, who's usually the most senior uh, chronological age-wise, at least, uh, is kind of in the back, making sure everybody's moving along and all that type of stuff. And they have these things called danger areas. So these are areas that when you get to them, it can be dangerous because the enemy, if there were one in this case, would might be laying in wait to ambush you. So things like river crossings, open fields, roads, things like that. So I remember very, very clearly there was a time as a young platoon leader when we were doing one of those exercises and the hand signal came back to me because everybody gets hand signals that there was a danger area in front. So I get this hand signal back saying there's a danger area. I work my way to the front because I'm the platoon leader. I'm going to assess the situation and decide what to do, okay? So I move up to the front and my, my point person's there. He said, sir, there's a, a, a river or a creek in front of us. Um, we need to kind of check out what we want to do. So everybody kind of hunkers down. You send people off to the left and to the right to provide security and you go assess the situation. So I go up to, the, to assess the situation and I see a, a big log laying across the river. And I say, that's where we're gonna cross. And he kind of looked at me like, <laughs> I know he was thinking, are you crazy? We're not crossing there. And I'm like, that's where we're crossing. So I go back to my position, we get up, we start moving, we get closer and we stop again. So I, now I'm getting a little frustrated. I go back to the front of the line and I'm like, what's going on? He said, sir, I don't think that log is that good to cross. And at that moment, my ego took over and I said, follow me. <laughs> I, I, you know, there's this, there's this statue in the military. It's, it's like guy throwing his arm. It says, follow me. I am the infantry. Yeah. And I was like, follow me. And I get up on that log and I start walking across because I'm going to model the behavior. And you can just guess what happens, right? He said, I don't think that's safe. I turn my rucksack weight on my back, causes me to fall off the log into about a nine or eight or nine foot water area. So I'm way submerged with all of my equipment <laughs> and nobody jumped in after me. <laughs> Everybody just watched me go in there. And I just, thankfully I could swim and I worked my way out and I drug up like a wet cat on the other side of that Creek. And I learned a big lesson. And so when I think about situations, if I say, well, I was really good at listening or I asked really good questions or I thought it wasn't about my authority. Okay. Temper that with stories like that, right? <laughs> Where I messed things up and I learned because I think too many times we have these, all these leadership stories that are all just like, it was hard and then it got really challenging and then we banded together and we landed on top of the mountain. And it's like, oh, there's lots of things that happen in the interim. So I think it's important for, for me at least, when I'm trying to work with students or work with leaders to kind of show the, uh, the untarnished or the tarnished side of my life, I guess, too, because that's helpful. I'm so glad you shared that story. I, I think it illustrates so much of life's perils. Uh, personally, pandemic-wise, in business, as we're really trying to level up, sometimes we're confident and then we fall off the log for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And you <laughs> and know what? I'm, I'm glad I fell off the log that day. I really am. I'm, I, I needed to learn that lesson. And, and um, yeah, there, you know, there was a few days of 
you know, a little bit of jabbing at me for a few days, but it went away and people saw how I dealt with it. Right. And, and I learned, and I think that's critical because how you deal with failure really is a key component of a, being a leader. I couldn't agree more. And I really find it's an accelerant. I, I have had some major public embarrassing mistakes across my career. I've worked with some of the, you know, biggest CEOs and executives in the world. And so to fail even in a small way in front of them can feel really, really big and devastating. <laughs> but um, when you do, it accelerates your learning so much. I can learn in a single day what otherwise might've taken me five years to build the confidence or get experience in. And so leaning into that and being like, okay, now that that's happened, let's maximize the learnings at least to make that a little bit more worth it. Um, a lot of, as you're describing your early military career, makes it feel, at least in retrospect, that it was a natural transition into the next stage of your career, which was in project management. I, I wonder if that's only hindsight, though, that those dots naturally connect. How, what, what was that transition like for you? Did it feel natural or how did, how did that career evolution no, come it didn't, to No, it didn't feel natural to me. It felt natural to leave the military. I felt like that was the right move to make because um, I kind of felt at the time that I'd done all the cool stuff at that point in my mind. And maybe that was because people who were mentoring me or people that I knew would often say like, enjoy the time while you're doing this because after this it's staff jobs and other things like that. And I was like, well, why do I want to do that? Part of it too was I just have, I, I suffer a little bit from a condition that, that's, we don't do this quite as much anymore because now you can play anything you want on Spotify. But in the past, if you were in your car and there was a song playing on the radio station, you could choose to listen to that song or proceed on to another song by changing the station. And um, I have always been the type of person that even if I find a song I like, I still find myself going, well, I'm gonna see what's on the other station. And then I can circle back later on if I want to and listen to this song again. So I'm, I'm always kind of like looking for the next best thing. There's always a little bit of that in, in me, it's, it's, I've tempered it over the years as I've aged a little bit. The grass isn't always greener someplace else. But I think that that desire to kind of find something even better just kind of is a yearning desire within me. So when I hit the point where I said I wanted to get out of the military, I felt comfortable that I, I'd, I'd done enough. I'd been kind of wearing the uniform for 10 years between my guard time and my active duty time. So I felt like that was enough. We just had our second child and uh, we were ready to make that pivot. But as far as that transition goes, it's pretty natural. Even if you don't, like what you're doing when you choose to move on to something else when that new something else gets a little tough you find yourself looking over your shoulder a little bit yeah and kind of wanting for what you had so i kind of had a little bit of that going on this was in the late 90s so i had a little bit of that going on for a while like should i have gotten out do i really like this fortunately for me uh, a friend of mine was working who i had been in the military with was working at kpmg consulting and he landed me a job there or at least an interview there and uh, that kind of allowed me to transition pretty quickly because there's one, you stop looking over your shoulder when your new job is really challenging, right? Yeah. At that point, you got to like, I got to focus on this thing. And somebody taught me a long time ago, they said to me, they said, you know what your best job is? And I said, what's that? And he goes, the one you're in right now. Because if you treat that like your best job, you open up a lot of doors for yourself. If you treat mm -hmm. it like it's not, and you start performing that way, then you better get move. And I think that's a really good piece of advice. Oh, I love that. I, I see so many people, especially early in their career, mistaking those early opportunities and just thinking of them as a stepping stone of always like, okay, what's next? What is this going to get me? What do I need to ask for? Instead of just really absorbing and learning as much as possible and appreciating it, even when you're doing intern level tasks, 
the fact that it might give you exposure to a room where very senior level conversations are going on or where you can observe a launch event or a best practice or something beyond your years, it really sit in that moment and savor it. That was probably one of the most impactful things I got early in my career was just watching a lot of those rooms function that I would then run, you know, 10 years later myself. Yeah, absolutely. If you get a chance to go in and it's not below you in that moment to take the notes, if you could sit in that room and take the notes, I mean, there's plenty of people, I could give you a list of people that right now in my career, I would gladly sit in the room and take notes to learn from them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's such good advice. So you ended up going to KPMG and Mm -hmm. having a very successful career there. Were there some highlights for you of what you learned during that stage? Well, I think for me, at least, um, there was a couple of things. So I was there for a few years and I had a crazy good run. It was like, I don't know, it was a lot of, lot, lot of things lucked out. I have a friend who's a songwriter and he says that to get a number one hit or a top 10 hit, and he's got several of them. He said, a bunch of miracles have to happen. <laughs> and it was so true in this situation, as far as I showed up and people that may be coming out of school or early on in their professional career, uh, if they join these big consulting firms, they kind of move in lockstep. In other words, they recruit a whole bunch of interns one year, then they come back and get another group of interns. So, and everybody has similar experiences to a certain point, but then you eventually get assigned to your team. And that's, that's one of those miracles. You got to get in the right team. And sometimes you have no control over that. It's a, your name is on a board and in some human resource person's office and they're just moving names around. And I was fortunate. I was put on a team with um, one other person from KPMG and she and I were the team, the team. And we were subcontracted underneath another company. So we were the two KPMG years working on a client site with a whole bunch of people from another company. And first of all, I, one thing I remember really quickly is learning how much they were charging for my time. And I was, <laughs> it, it got me to realize the importance of being able to speak about money, which up until then in the military, I never spoke about money. Right? You, had, you had a budget. Everybody got paid the same, all that type of thing. But to learn how to speak about money as a business owner, you have to become very comfortable, I think. Um, you know, learning about that as well. So there were very quickly, there were two of us on this project. We were subcontracted underneath another company. Uh, within three years time, our project had gone from us, the two of us to a team of about 40. The, the primary contractor was gone and I was running the team and we were billing out well, well over $10 million a year in revenue. Wow. So I like had this really neat ride. Um, however, one thing I learned along that way too, is I saw getting back to talking about like what team you get put on. So in our office, picture this nondescript floor of an office building at KPMG, four corner offices, each corner office is um, the resident is a partner in the business. This is packed before they went public. So it was um, a partner in each corner and everybody reported to that partner in their respective corner. And my partner was a tyrant. I mean, he really was. You could go with to him with the best news in the world. He's probably still going to throw something across the room. <laughs> very, I mean, literally like, I mean, I'm talking like those big, huge, like water things that they, everybody drinks out of all day and you know, big water containers, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Just crazy. And then down the hallway is another partner treating his people like you want to be led type of experience. So that alone, I kind of watched the two dynamics play out. So anyway, when we got uh, three and a half, four years into the, and working there, um, my wife was teaching at a university and a, she had a client come up who was asking her to do a project. And every night I'd come home from work from my KPMG job and she and I would sit down and work on the project. So that became our side hustle. And we did that for um, about six months time. 
and it just kind of get got longer and longer into the night. And at that point, we were like, you know, maybe we need to do something else. Uh, along that time frame, I actually did make a job transition. I went from KPMG Consulting to a company called Franklin Covey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and many people probably know Stephen Covey who wrote Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. So I worked on his team for a little bit and then was doing that night project along the way. So, yep, that was that part. That's incredible. I, I really resonate with the part of your story about, um, I, I think what I would call that part of your journey engineered serendipity. You obviously had built a reputation for somebody who is reliable, what one of my clients calls a a foxhole friend, which is a nice reference for your military background. Like, who do you want to be with in the trenches when you do have a kind of live wire manager like that? Who do I want at my side who's going to keep their cool, be really smart and manage the situation effectively? And I think you obviously were also a memorable person that you got chosen for a project like that that was at such a high billable, obviously high stakes when a client is, is a little bit um, unpredictable like that. So I think that's such a beautiful example of, yes, there's absolutely luck involved, but there often is more opportunities for ha- us have to, to have some control over the teams or at least our influence on that team than appears on the surface at first. I think. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, there's, I don't know the number. I've never really studied this, but it seems to me when you look back at your course of a career, so I've got out of, I graduated college nearly 30 years ago. So over the course of 30 years, there's probably 10 or 15 moments that are really like the critical moments, yeah. right? You could go left or you could go right or you go straight forward type of thing. And all the other time is just trying to, in my, my world, like do good work, keep your head down, make, keep commitments, stay connected with people, show people you care, actually not just show them you care, actually care. You know, all, all those type of things are kind of the day-to-day things that you do that when you hit those moments, A, the opportunity comes up and, and, and B, you can, you feel more confident which, which direction to go next. Did you, do you think um, that you knew it was a sliding door moment when those moments were happening to you? I'm, I'm asking because as I'm thinking about my career, I can absolutely list about 10 of like, mm-hmm. those were pivotal moments in my career that led to such unexpected opportunities. But I wonder if I'm able to only identify those in retrospect. And I'm trying to remember, I think at least half of those were obvious to me in the moment of like- Yeah, I, I was gonna give you two that I can think of right away that one in retrospect and one in the moment. Oh, tell me. Right yeah. in this career. So, so one in retrospect was when I was at KPMG and I had been there for just a few months there was this big client meeting that was going to happen. And by big, I meant they were bringing in like 20 people from different cities in the US to come to these kind of focus group discussions. And each one was gonna last a week because we were mapping out these processes. It was kind of complicated. And they were gonna be two weeks in a row. So like 40 clients over the course of two weeks mapping out these things. And my boss, not the gentleman I mentioned in the corner office, a different person, uh, that boss was, was going to be the leader facilitating this. And I got a call from my boss that Sunday night before it started saying, I'm not going to be there tomorrow. And remember, wow. we're, two, we're the sub team underneath the bigger team. So in that moment, he said, he said I'm not going to be there tomorrow. I didn't even ask him like, why? I just, okay. <laughs> and uh, maybe I said, hope everything's okay. I don't know. And, and he said, so I need you to do it. So the next morning I showed up and I walked in and I told the company we were reporting to, I said, um, so-and-so is not here. I'm going to run the meeting today. And the person looked at me and goes, you're... 29 years old. What are you talking about? You're not running this meeting. And I don't know where it came from. But at the time I said, I said, no, I'm going to, I said, no, I'm going to run it. Then that person went away, came back with their VP at their company 
and kind of got up on my face a little bit. And they said, no, you're not ready to do this. I can't believe this is a breach of contract, all these type of things. Wow. And all I said to them was, I said, give me to lunch. If I can't, if we get to lunch and I haven't done a good job, I'll sit down, I'll be quiet. <laughs> and two weeks later, I was still doing it. And I think that was, um, you know, not knowing what I didn't know, not knowing it was really a bold thing to say in that moment and just kind of be like, kind of feeling a little backed up against the corner. So I was like, I can do this. And then the nice part was because I was mapping out their processes and stuff that were doing focus type conversations, a curious mind is a good mind in those situations, right? The fact that I didn't know much was kind of helpful because I would say, well, isn't there a step between this and that? And they'd say, oh yeah, this. And so anyway, that, that would be a moment that I didn't know in the moment that it was an important point, but it definitely was. However, when my wife and I were, when we were working that side hustle at night, I have a very specific moment that I know was a moment that we had to make a choice. And it'd been a time where we probably were working like two o'clock every night on this second side hustle business. And we were sitting on a couch. It's a leather couch. It sits in the room right behind where your head is on my screen. It's the next room over. I don't ever want to get rid of that couch because it was on that couch. One day we said to each other, we said, I think we got a business here. You know, are we going to double down on this business or are we going to keep staying up till two o'clock in the morning until it dies off? And we said, let's quit our jobs. Let's do it. And that, that was a very specific moment that I remember. So, yeah, I think that there's, there's, you know, I don't, I don't know, 60, 40, 80, 20. I don't know what the relationship is, but there's some, we know some, we don't know. And it's just the day to day trying to do the right thing that helps you get ready for those moments. Oh, there's so much to unpack in that. I think for me, it's, it's similar. 60, 40 is about like, there's definitely some moments where I was like, this is counterintuitive, but I can't get this out of my head. I have to take a chance. Um, And I also really appreciate your example of when you were attempting to do something you had never done before and other people were questioning your capabilities, probably rightly so. Um, I love that you invited them to experiment with you. You put some guardrails around it. You were like, okay, this isn't going to be complete utter failure because we've got some guardrails, but give me a chance within these parameters and then you can step in. And when I look, as you were describing that, and I'm looking back, thinking about many of my pivot moments... I did that without even realizing I was following that pattern of being like, hey, here's something I've never done before. Nobody else in this company has ever done it before either. Would you give me this leash, this specific leash to try it out? And then if I'm failing, here's what we'll do next. Here's the plan B. I think that model works really, really well for anybody who's in a disruptive industry where you're doing something that nobody has really perfected yet, or when you're really trying to level up and take on a new challenge. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned like leash and I agree. There's, I call it, I I refer to it as oxygen, but give me some space to operate in. And I try to do that with people that I work with to give them some space to operate in and they'll figure things out. The the interesting thing is that moment that I didn't realize was a moment at the time, that room that had those people in there, some of them became my client in my business for the next 12 years after we started, after we sat on that couch and said, let's start a business. Some of the people in that very room, so many years later became clients of ours for 12 years. Some of them I've written about in my books. I mean, it's, it's it really interesting. And that was the moment that took it from being us two people on a team with my boss who didn't show up that day to eventually me running a team. I mean, it just, it just pivoted everything because in those meetings, those two weeks of meetings with those clients who were themselves a lot of um, um, high performers and people who were going to move into senior leadership roles in the organizations, uh, I gained, I kind of gained their respect in a way, or at least they knew they can rely on me. And I'm a big advocate that every every leader that you see, um, an executive or a person who works in a company uh, that's in a senior leadership role, 
that you kind of aspire to do something with and work with, they all have more on their plates than they can handle. They're always looking for somebody that they can trust to take something. And if you're willing to come up and say, I'll take that morsel that's falling off the side of your plate and help you work on that, it just, they'll keep turning to you. And, you know, that's never beneath me to do. I'm always happy to help people like that. That's genius. Um, I really, I've seen that pattern so many times of when you identify a way that you can formulate a win-win-win when it's um, an opportunity for you to level up and be challenged by something you've never done before. And by doing so, freeing up your manager to be more effective as they're leveling up. And that's good for understanding how your day-to-day can then connect to the success of the entire company. You're going to get a yes every time. That's really how you create these opportunities. Um, And people kind of look at you like, how did you get chosen for that? Well, you kind of engineered that a little bit by seeing an opportunity for a win-win-win. Hi there. I just wanted to take a quick break from this fascinating conversation to invite you to buy my book, Bet on Yourself. It's available wherever you like to buy books. In Bet on Yourself, I'll take you on a deep dive into the best practices I collected by watching the exceptional careers of my CEO mentors, including Jeff Bezos, Marissa Meyer, and Eric Schmidt. I also share stories of what it was like to work at Amazon and Google during the foundational years of those companies and the internet. I use my own career as a case study for how to translate the habits of these super performers into any career at any stage and within any industry. I also attempt to answer the question of why all three of these celebrity CEOs chose to partner with me in order to fulfill their most ambitious goals and how I am now going to do the same for you. While these stories are fun and fascinating, What I hope for most is that you will walk away not only inspired, but with a playbook for how you can take action, recover from setbacks, and create your own wild adventures and joy-filled success stories, and a work life centered around your personal mission and values. Okay, let's get back to the podcast interview and more examples of how taking even seemingly small bets on yourself can lead to extraordinary results. I could talk about to you for hours. I'm mindful. I have so much more I want to ask you. One, I want to ask you about your side hustle that became this very successful company for the next 12 years um, that you built with your wife. And I really want to get into you are your third book is just coming out in a couple of weeks. And I, as someone publishing my very first book for the very first time, and I'm learning a lot of things as I go selfishly, I want to ask you a lot about your, about the process, but, um, I, I have a feeling. So your third book is titled the five week leadership challenge. And, um, I have a feeling you've already been teasing a lot of these core concepts that are involved in this five week leadership challenge. And I, I imagine that a lot of them were honed during this experience of building your side hustle into this major force that it became. So I wonder if I can ask two questions in one and be like, what are the, what were the major things that you learned as you took that risk and built your own company with your wife? And then how did that lead you into writing a series of books and developing this five week leadership challenge? Yeah. So we started, we started the business on the couch over the next 11 years. So we started it in 2001, kind of a tough year to start a business. <laughs> we started in April of 2001. We sold it in um, May of 2012. And it was a fun ride up until that point. So we had offices in a few different states. We had a great list of clients. We had great employees. I mean, I have to, I, we, we could spend hours talking about, you know, if it wasn't for those clients and it wasn't for that great team, none of this, you know, that, none of that success would happen. And most, for the most part, all my success is their success. Definitely. Mm. Um, coincidentally, when I sold that business in 2012, my wife and I did, we, um, the person who opened the door for us to sell that business 
was that same boss at KPMG who called me on that Sunday night and said that he couldn't make the meeting the next day. Wow. Yeah. So people talk about networks and a lot of times students will be like, I want to build a network, but they don't know what it means. I mean, it means that there's certain people in your circle that you stay connected with and not just like, yeah, I've got them as a LinkedIn connection. It literally means like, I'm willing, I'm willing to call them up and say, what can I do to help you type of thing. And it's, it, you should be like thinking about like, who do I let into my network and how do I stay connected with them and how can I help them? Because it always helps you. And that's exactly what happened in that situation. So anyway, as far as, yeah, a lot of what came into the book that's coming out, the five week leadership challenge book was informed um, oftentimes by my own experiences but I'm very straightforward in saying, I don't want the book to be a, all of my stories of leadership and then you try to be me. That's not, that's not what it is. I refer to it as I, I use stories as a vehicle to teach certain leadership things. And not every story is my story directly. Like I do write about the time I fell off the log that is in the book. Um, but there's other times where I, I've been really fortunate. I've shared the stage with the prime minister of Iceland. We were presenting at the 100 years of sovereignty for the country and I watched her uh, Katrin Jakob's daughter, when I watched her present and how she handled the situation, I read a chapter called own, How to Own the Room and what that means and how you do it. Or I read a chapter about a young lady who I've known since she was a little girl. Her name's Lucy Westlake. And, and Lucy Westlake at 13 years old taught me a lot about how to handle failure because her and her dad were trying to summit Denali, which is the highest point in North America. And if she had done it, she'd be the youngest woman in, US, in, in world history to reach all 50 US state high points. And they didn't do it. 21 days on the mountain, they didn't make it. Uh, so I wrote the story about how she dealt with it because Outside Magazine called her the grittiest 13 year old climber we know. And I sat down and talked to her about what, it, what was the experience like and what did she learn? And she just talked about, yeah, I, I wanted to make it. We didn't make it. We spent 21 days, it was kind of miserable. And uh, I was a fatality in the group in front of us. So I had to kind of see that and deal with that a little bit. And we came down from the mountain and up until then, every other mountain I'd ever tried, I just went right up type of thing. But she said, it also makes me want to do it more. And she had this great story. Coincidentally, uh, four years later, so that she was 13 at the time. This is four years later now. And this June, her and her dad made it to the top of Denali. Wow. And at 17, she's still the youngest woman in history to do it type of thing, right? So actually, when my book comes out in toward the end of August, she's going on a road tour with me, a book tour with me. We're going to go to Chicago, Indianapolis, um, Louisville, and Nashville. And she gets a chance to kind of tell her story to these audiences as one example. So the book is full of examples like that. The framework for the book is, uh, is based in these five Ps. Remember I told you I used to be in the infantry, so I try to keep things pretty simple. <laughs> if you're in marketing, you know the four Ps or five or six. This is five. So it's the first piece perspective. What's the mindset of a leader? How can you think like a leader? I know you have people who listen to this podcast or students coming out of university or schooling or starting in their careers. They might aspire to be in a leadership role. You have uh, potential founders of business or new founders of business that are looking to lead their teams. You have professionals who maybe want to level up, right? So these different exactly. audiences, all of them are transitioning into um, potential leadership roles. And I just kind of talk about these 10 mindsets of a leader and I do it through stories. So I'll tell like, hey, as a, if you want to be an effective leader, you need to realize that you can't control everything, but what you can control or influence, you need to double down and put your energy on. I tell a parachuting story type of thing, right? So every day there's a reading, there's 35 readings. So we go through perspective, purpose, priorities, plans, and performance. And the intent is to spend 10 to 15 minutes a day on you. Can you carve out 10 to 15 minutes? You talk about bet on yourself. You got to invest in yourself, right? So 10 to 15 minutes a day in you, on you, I, I, I structured it as if you would do it 35 days in a row. 
but I can tell you right now, people don't People do it because I, I, I have an online version of it and people do it in four days, five days, seven days. So in the back of the book, I put a little calendar. If you do it in four days, here's when you read these. If you do it in five oh, wow. days, here's when you read these. Right. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit agnostic as far as how they do it. I just want them to do it. I have a group in Haiti that's going, going to go through the book one day a week for 35 weeks. And these are new business owners in Haiti who are trying, who are trying to move from a reliance on some outside aid and assistance to truly running their own businesses. I love how you've transitioned principles into actionable daily micro lessons, investing in yourself. I think that's such a powerful concept. I've seen that as a best practice with these you know, now celebrity CEOs that I worked for. The people, probably the most frequently asked question I get is what is the common denominator between these high performers? And among my favorite answers is they consistently invest in themselves. They are insatiably curious. They take time to have thinking retreats, to be in new environments, to challenge themselves in new ways, to never become stagnant. And I love that your book is a how-to manual for getting started on that on that daily practice or weekly practice, however someone's implementing well, it. Well, I, I kind of, I was, I think about like what, you know, how do you describe yourself? Like what's your brand? And I haven't really been able to completely reconcile why this is my brand, but in, ten, in general, people will tell me I'm one of two things. If they listen to, some people say I'm very pragmatic and other people say I'm like a big dreamer, an idea person. So somehow I'm this pragmatic dreamer is, is what I <laughs> ultimately am. Like I can dream up some big things that we try to do and tackle. But I also recognize like you can't get there if you don't invest every day in trying to make it happen. And I think it takes business, takes a degree of discipline because otherwise what happens, you know, kind of shifting to business and some of your listeners in general, you know, sometimes it, it, you get lucky and something does go well and you start to, you start to, you start to get this sense of hubris. Like it's happening because of me and I, everything I touch, it turns to gold. And the reality is that if you want to keep having those good moments, you got to get up, you got to do the hard work, you got to, you know, and there's a lot of people who, you know, say they want to be a writer or say they want to be an entrepreneur or say, and the reality is they just want to say they want to be that. Mm -hmm. It's fun for cocktail parties and it's enjoyable. The people who are really the writers or really the entrepreneurs are the ones who are getting up every day and saying, I'm writing three pages today, or I'm writing 10 pages today, or I'm going to get through this chapter tomorrow or whatever it is, or not tomorrow, today. Or they're the ones going out on and making 10 business calls. They're doing those type of things because that's how you become an entrepreneur. That's how you become a writer. That's how you become a whatever is you stop talking about it and you start doing it. I literally got goosebumps as you were describing that because even the, even now um, I've had this great career that I'm very grateful for and proud of. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm now publishing my first book. I, I do have those moments of imposter syndrome because what you see on the outside, this glamour from the stage, giving keynotes, you know, TEDx, you know, talks or whatever people are doing, what you just described is actually what the day-to-day -day looks like. This seemingly invisible work, the grind, the less glamorous, this un-Instagrammable moments of just putting in that daily effort. That's actually what what has been my experience now after leaving Amazon and Google and starting my own company, coaching these entrepreneurs, becoming an author. It's just me showing up every morning when nobody else is keeping me accountable. There's some kind of internal drive that you're responding to. And I have seen so many times, I've also had some clients early on before I'd really kind of figured out where my niche fit was with entrepreneurs. I had some clients where, which were what you described as like, they love the title of CEO, but they didn't like 
that grind part of the work. They liked being the idea of being on a magazine cover or on a big stage, but they didn't like the strategy or showing up every single Monday for a strategy meeting. That's actually what it means to be a leader. It's just that consistency of effort and challenge. I just think your book is going to really help and empower people to fulfill these wildest dreams and to understand what that success actually looks like on a day-to-day basis, not just at the end of your career journey. I, I hope so. I mean, that's the reason I did it. That's the reason we do it. But it is, it's funny. I'm, I'm in my early fifties. I teach at Vanderbilt University, which is a, in the U.S. top 14, 15 university in the States. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a good school. Um, and then I think to myself, why is it that I'm going to bed every night thinking, how are we going to sell books tomorrow? And I wake up every morning saying, how are we going to sell books today? And I probably have nightmares slash dreams about how are we going to position books uh, up to this launch? And it, I also think sometimes I'm talking about a book that's a $25 book when I used to talk about $200,000 projects. But I also <laughs> know that that $25 book and getting in the hands of people is what opens up opportunities for them and actually more opportunities for me. So it's kind of interesting. Once you decide you're going to go into something, you just got to like, you got to go for it. And that means you've got to do the hard, unfun work sometimes. Yeah. Oh, you're making me feel so much better. This is like a therapy session. Thank you. For- <laughs> well, I, I am a doctor. <laughs> but I, I, I always jokingly say, I'd like if I'm on an airplane and they say, is there a doctor on the airplane? I'm like, um, I'm the kind of has you fill out a survey. So you may not want my help. <laughs> If that's helpful, I'll, I'll conduct. Yeah, exactly. A exactly. I mean, how are you feeling in this moment? <laughs> no, I'm not taking symptoms. I'm just gathering data. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, I would love to have a cheat sheet of your best practices in launching a book because I am very much figuring this out as I go. Um, but I really appreciate what you just described as, as being so mission focused on why this is so important to you. Like, yeah, I've managed enormous budgets before and big glamorous, like, you know, production cycles and launch events and things. And, and the hustle mm-hmm. of this is so much, I was going to say harder, but it's just different. It just feels yeah, different. Because- different. Yeah. And like you said, and it's, um, it's definitely, you know, when you and I were talking before we started recording, mm-hmm. you told me here are the people that I'm speaking to in the podcast, here are my listeners. And you quickly um, rattled off kind of three categories of people. And that's the same thing when you're producing a book or anything else. You're thinking about like, who's the person who's going to have this in their hand and how do I want them to use it? And that's what, that's what makes you think about like, how do I help them do that? Because I don't want, they might fall off a log into a Creek, (laughs) but maybe I can help them make it dry off a little bit quicker by doing some of these things. So that's the really intent behind it. And I've been very fortunate too in my career. I've worked with so many great people who have taught me so many wonderful things. And I think that's part of it. If can we pass it on a little bit, I think is really critical too. Yeah, I've been in the creek many times. I would like to think that that's a once and done lesson learned, yeah, but no, no. no. <laughs> I've definitely continued yeah. to fall into the creek. I've also but- fallen in creeks when there's nobody watching. And I just know, except me. And the question is, what do you do with it at that point? Do you act like it never happened or do you learn from it? Right? Yeah. 20 years ago, I probably would act like it never happened. Now I'll come in and say, let me tell you something. <laughs> nobody saw this, but I'm going to reveal it to you anyway. And I always tell my students in my class at the beginning of every semester, I always say, um, I'll step up in the front of the room and I always say the same thing. I say, I am the absolute perfect professor to teach this class. And you can imagine the eyes like cut around, like, who is this joker, right? <laughs> and then, then right after I pause and I say, I'm also the absolute worst professor to teach this class. Because what we're going to talk about now, I've done some of it so well, and I've done some of it so poorly. And, and I think it just kind of sets the tone of how I see life. 
students will ask me like, hey, Professor Ledden, can I have a grab a cup of coffee? And if you ask me for a cup of coffee, I'm down. <laughs> Anybody comes through Nashville, want to grab a cup of coffee, I'm down. But uh, they'll say like, we saw your resume or we saw your profile on LinkedIn. I want to be more like that. And, and I'll say, let me tell you something. Let me tell you all the lessons that happen in the white space that don't show up on this resume. Those are the ones that really stick. The resume is the high points, right? Yeah. The resume is the benefits and features that show up in your catalog for your product. It doesn't show how hard it was to produce that product or what you learned along the way or the 50 versions that you tried before that didn't work, right? And that's what I think your listeners need to, you know, if, if they gain anything from this, one is that um, other people have traveled down the road. So you're smart to listen to podcasts like this and, and learn lessons and pick up copies of Ann's book and just in triplicate because I think that will be really helpful to you. Learn from people who have been down the path before. You do not have to do this all on your own, but you have to do it. And nobody's going to do it for you. So finding that, that, that bridge between people are willing to help me, but at the end of the day, I got to pick up the other end of the log. <laughs> I guess the logs today. You know, that's a really critical thing. And, and it's not always going to be fun. It's not always going to be glamorous. But no. it gives you more choices in life by betting on yourself. I really appreciate you highlighting both ends of this journey because I, and I think it's interesting because you're even your self-definition of this pragmatic dreamer, you've got these two extremes and you're so right being an entrepreneur. Um, I think it was Ben Horowitz in his book, the hard thing about hard things described being an entrepreneur as only two emotions, terror and euphoria. And that absolutely <laughs> has been true for me, <laughs> but I think in these moments, of vacillation between these extremes, we think we're doing it wrong because what you see on the outside with other people who are seem wildly successful is it feels like they're constantly in this nice lane. And I feel like I'm doing bumper cars all the time. Yeah. Um, but that's actually what success does look like. I, I've seen it from the greatest CEOs in the world. Their careers were not as linear as they appear on the outside. They learned a lot of things by bumping around and finding those guardrails. And um, I really appreciate this message of hope that you're giving to this next generation of entrepreneurs, to your students, to your readers, to thank you for sharing it with the listeners of this podcast, because I think that is absolutely the truth is just embracing the full spectrum of the journey and knowing that that is part of success and not a distraction from it. Absolutely. And I use the journey analogy a lot. I like to hike. Um, and it's just a great analogy. It is a journey. And actually, if I may, as we're wrapping things up, I, I hiked Mount Kilimanjaro with my son a couple of years ago. And um, I am so, the pragmatic side of me makes me want to check off my to-do list constantly. So I am, <laughs> I, am a, I am a person who loves my to-do list. I love checking stuff off my to-do list. If I to-do it and it's not on my to-do list, I add it. So I can check it off my to-do list and get that Me moment too. of euphoria. And I remember when we were hiking the mountain, the, the, our guide, a guy named Rashid, who had been to the top of this mountain, get this, 300 times he'd been to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. Wow. He was our guide. And every night he would, in the tent, he'd come in and tell us, here's the plan for tomorrow. And I'm constantly going, Rashid, how far are we going tomorrow? Rashid, what's the elevation change tomorrow? Rashid, what time are we leaving? Rashid, what time are we finishing? And he kept going... Or I'd say, what are we doing in two days? What are we doing in three days? And his, he was constantly trying to get me to ground into the moment, just enjoy mm -hmm. the moment. And I wrote a chapter called Enjoy the Journey because it is a journey that you're on right now. And the, the low points and high parts are part of that journey. The funny thing is when I look back at the pictures of my son and I hiking that mountain, um, yeah, I look at the one we're at the top, no doubt. I mean, there's the picture of us by that iconic sign and we're standing at the top of the mountain. But I spend a lot more time looking at the photos and watching the videos where we're laughing in the tent or he takes a photo over his shoulder of me kind of going through a difficult point 
or whatever it might be. It's that journey that makes it rich. So don't, don't forget that the, that, that the highs and lows are part of the experience and you got to like embrace all of it, even the crappy stuff, because you'll be better in the long run because of it. Another mic drop moment. Thank you, Patrick. This is so enlightening and inspiring. And you've given me this dose of adrenaline I really needed right now. Um, I haven't been well for the last couple of weeks and I, you've given me that renewed energy and um, reawoken my why in, in, in this entrepreneurial awesome. journey. So I appreciate that very much. My favorite last question as we wrap mm -hmm. up is, I'm curious what is giving you hope for the future? As we're all coming out of a massive global pivot and pandemic, what is giving you hope? What are you excited about that's coming next? Well, obviously the book in the short term is an important thing for me. And that comes out August 24th. But I think the, the what gives me hope is what, what gives me hope most days is when I get to walk into that classroom at the university and see you know, all these bright young minds who are going to go out to the, in the world. And, and I know it sounds trite, but like solve some of the problems we've created for ourselves, but they are. And, and I, I do better when I'm around people who challenge me and these young minds challenge me. So from my perspective, I get a lot of hope and a lot of excitement um, from being around the students and talking to the students and seeing what they're going to do. And then hearing back from them, I've been really fortunate uh, over the years to have students who stay connected with me and just to hear what they're doing and what they're accomplishing. To me, that really does fuel my fire. Well, I am very inspired by your journey and this beautiful cast of people you've invited along with you. Everyone, all our listeners, myself included, we're going to go out and we're going to buy the five-week leadership challenge right now. Um, how can we follow along on this journey? Where can we follow you on social media? How can we um, gather with like-minded people who are joining this challenge all together? Sure. So LinkedIn is one place. So if they just go to Patrick Ledin on LinkedIn, if they look me up, I'm probably the only one out there. Um, but I have about 102,000 people who follow me on LinkedIn because every week I put out a leadership article and a free leadership tool. Or you can go to um, the, the number five, fiveweekleadershipchallenge.com. And we have an assessment on there that you can fill out and it takes about 10 minutes. And we actually give you a report that's pretty darn personalized. It comes back to you and it might say, and based upon how you scored, why don't you listen to these six or seven podcast episodes that we have? Why don't you listen to or read these 10 articles? Why don't you um, um, check out these tools? Because we have probably because of so long of putting out content every week that I do, because every week I put a newsletter has a, a new podcast episode, a new uh, tool, a new article and a new video. So it's a lot of stuff every week. We've been doing it for years. So there's hundreds of articles on there and it's all free. So just go check it out and, uh, and use it. Plus, if you buy the book in advance, uh, we give you a week's um, of the online course for free and a couple other tools, including another book I wrote about leadership that you get to download for free. So we're really trying to put it all out there to help folks out. Patrick, I too love a list that is now at the top of mine. I will, I will take all of those action items and do it right now. Thank you so much for your generosity, for sharing your wisdom, your journey, your inspiration with us. And I very much look forward to following the journey as you go forward. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Anne. Take care. Thanks, Patrick. <laughs>